Welcome to the Unpolished MBA. I'm your host, Monique Mills. Many times entrepreneurs are called unpolished because they are scrappy and do things in unconventional ways. Well, I like the name Unpolished MBA so much that I even trademarked it. So on this podcast, we commend those with practical experience because they've proven time and time again that one can be successful in business even if they don't have a formal MBA degree. So on each episode, we discuss topics related to business and entrepreneurship. And I've been told that my guests and I provide insights and inspiration to aspiring and current entrepreneurs alike. So this is the place where you can come and hear real life stories that can help you navigate both challenges and opportunities in business. Now let's jump into the next episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Unpolished MBA. And I have a special guest with me today who is a search fund investor. So a lot of you all have heard me talking about search funds and this whole thing about acquiring businesses. And you're like, what am I talking about? So I want to introduce you to someone who is very much a force in that whole world. And so I want to welcome Somil Jarawala to the Unpolished MBA. Welcome, Somil. Thanks, Monique. Appreciate you having me and just thrilled to get to chat. Oh, yeah. We're going to chat about some stuff. This is an interesting topic for a lot of people now because a few things, as you know, are happening in the economy with jobs and people who are seasoned and have experience. They don't want to play the pick me, pick me game in the hiring world. And I don't blame them. And so folks are considering entrepreneurship and this. As we talk about search funds and all that, this is another aspect of entrepreneurship. So I just mentioned that you're a search fund investor. So I want you to just describe to the audience what that means. Absolutely. There are tens of millions of American small businesses out there. And uh, for whatever reason, generally, there isn't kind of a home for those, for those businesses. It's hard for them to get financing. And so what I do as a search fund investor is I help folks who want to go out there and buy a small business. I help give them the capital to go out and do that. And it's a kind of nice little win-win. You've got, you know, tons and tons of baby boomers. You know, about half of American small businesses are owned by baby boomers. You know, time for them to retire. They're, they're looking for a way to enter retirement. Uh, and they have these wonderful small businesses and kind of not, not a person to take over them after they retire. And so, you know, we help connect those small business owners with young, hungry, first-time entrepreneurs that want to run great companies and it turns out from the point of view of the investors, uh, it's also generated great returns. So, you know, a nice example of a win-win-win. A lot of folks are more familiar with investors as far as like venture capital goes, because that's something that's talked about more in the public, typically. Most people don't talk about search fund investors. So when you are considering yourself a search fund investor, what does that mean? Do you write a personal check? Because in the, in the startup world, we call those like angel investors, right? Or do you do something similar to venture capitalists where you have a fund with LPs and different people's money that you help deploy into companies? It's exactly the latter. It's that this kind of, I've raised a small fund, a $10 million fund to invest in small businesses through that search fund model. And so I have the, the privilege to work with a couple of families that, you know, believe in the power of entrepreneurship. And, you know, get a lot of joy out of helping folks 
buy and transform these wonderful small businesses. And so that's kind of what I get to do. I manage the small funds that invest in small businesses, the search fund model, and I deploy, invest a little bit of my own capital, but also that of some families that are excited about participating and getting to be a part of this. Okay. So most of your investors are family offices, right? Correct. Not necessarily high net worth in individuals like angel investors. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, and it's funny. I, I found the distinction to be pretty shallow, right? Like usually yeah. <laughs> uh, these folks kind of, you know, they, they call themselves family offices and it's a kind of nice fancy title, but you know, they're folks just, just like you and me that have made, you know, somewhere between 25 and a few hundred million dollars. Uh, I know that sounds like they're not like folks like you and me, but I guess what I'm trying to say is every family office, there's a, a decision maker, often the person who who generated that much wealth uh, and, and like is the person making the decision whether or not they want to be an investor or not. All right, let's take a moment to thank the biggest sponsor of the Unpolished MBA. That's TPM Focus. TPM Focus is a strategy consulting firm that helps startups and small business owners generate revenue and find their way to profitability when they're launching a new product or in a new market. So reach out to tpmfocus.com. TPM stands for the Profit Matters Focus.com. So that's kind of the way I think about it. It's, you know, a handful of families and you know, maybe they technically have family office, family offices or the kind of way they structure their wealth. But ultimately, it's these individuals who get excited about the mission, right? What we're trying to do here. I know that a lot of folks don't really understand the concept of family offices. There is a, there was a fascinating webinar I was on maybe a month ago where a venture capitalist brought different members of their family offices that are invested in their fund. Just to talk about like, how did, where'd your family get money from? Is it part of your money? Like, where is this money coming from? Why are you doing this with your money? It was fascinating. And so I like the way you said just everyday people. Well, I think, I think every people overall are everyday people, but I like the way you did say like you and I, because it's just a group. Like if you can get a group of folks in your family or, you know, whatever it is that want to put money together and invest, funds like yours or venture capital or whatever it is, is a way to do it. So it's just a fascinating topic for anyone who wants to do more research on that. And actually, I think I might do an episode on that. You uh, should. And yeah, I might even act, you know, and, and just kind of riffing on this. And there's this idea that these family offices are kind of like, you know, the Rockefellers or these families that have been around for a long time. And, and certainly those types of families exist. but for whatever reason, um, the folks I've gotten to work with, they're kind of first-generation wealth creators. Mm -hmm. And in fact, many of them are entrepreneurs themselves or maybe kind of early startup employees that, you know, some of the most successful companies in the world. And so, um, you know, that's that changed their lives, getting to, to be entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial. And so this type of thing really speaks to them. You know, folks out there that are trying to address this kind of big problem of what do we do with all these American small businesses that need to find new homes and new owners? And new CEOs. Um, and you have these folks who are kind of young and, and hungry and, and want to do this, but have never been CEOs before. Yeah. And so that kind of speaks to them. It's a nice way for them to invest their money, but also they love those stories. It's like a big part of the reason why they like to invest in this world. So as a search fund investor yourself, what would you say are some of the key factors, right, you consider with um, a potential searcher? Like 
What are you looking for in them? I don't like to call myself the word searcher. I always say I'm just an entrepreneur. I'm looking to acquire a business. But <laughs> but I know searcher is the term that we use now. So I'm just letting you guys know that's the term. But what do you look for when you're potentially going to invest in a company with a searcher? Are you looking for them to have entrepreneurial experience? Are you looking for them to have that industry's experience? Um, are you looking for them to be have a certain number of um, years in their career? Yeah, it's funny. Um, it's uh, I guess I'll, I'll start with something that um, it, it almost should go un, unsaid or unspoken, but I, it's, I think it's important to lay the, the groundwork, which is the reason this model works isn't because or I guess I should say the reason the model works is because it's all about talent, right? You know, I often think about my job as a search fund investor is taking folks who I know are going to be successful no matter what they do and helping point them away from the 2x opportunities, the chance to kind of create some wealth that for themselves and kind of 2x investors money and point them towards the 10x opportunities. Those people are going to work hard either way, right? Like, and, uh, and they're going to be successful either way. But I like to play that small role in helping point them towards those opportunities that are going to be really transformational for themselves and their kind of families, uh, but also for the companies that they get to take over and, and run and, and grow in huge ways. And so that's, I think, the first thing. It, it's like a, the model works for the talent. It's not because of like there's that one magical small business and anyone could run it and would be successful. It's all about people. So that's, I think, the first thing. And so if you believe that, and I've seen it over and over again, then fundamentally, it's all about intrinsics, right? Um, you know, fancy resume is nice, but really what we're looking for is folks who have, they've never been in a pond where they haven't been the big fish. That's the way I like to put it, you know? Ooh. And yeah, and, and that's the thing, right? And what it, it turns out that's so important because, um, boy, this is hard, right? And it, it's hard yes, for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think one of the biggest things, and you know, I feel this, and I know you feel this, is, um, man, it is strange when you go from a job, a W two job, and go to work for yourself because there's all this amorphousness and ambiguity, and you don't realize that how much that structure of a job, how valuable that is to some people, and it takes a special type of person that can succeed in that environment, which is the way you demonstrate, you know, you've never been. Uh, in a pond that has been a big pond. Like you've always been a big fish, big fish, no matter the size of the pond. So you've succeeded in that context and it takes a special type of person who can then succeed in this entrepreneurial context. It's oh. so, um, they're so structured. I like the way you said that. So here's my question to you though, on that front, how do you know that about someone, right? So a lot of times in this world, investors are like, hey, you know, I'm a search fund investor. You find a deal, let me know. Find a deal, let me know. And you see that happen a lot. They don't even know these people that they're saying that to, right? Now, how does, how does that operate in your world? I, and you've, I directly identified something that has just struck me as strange for so long. And I like to remind folks that the first search fund deal happened in 1984. So this industry has been around for 40 years. However, it really only like took off and hit exit velocity in the last 15 years where you just saw, started to see a lot more folks doing this. It wasn't just a kind of like fun thing you did with 1% of your time and 2% of your capital once you'd become fabulously wealthy. People started to realize that what we were doing was important. 
There's no reason it shouldn't be done by hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people each, each year. And so what I'm trying to say, it's a relatively young industry. And then that means there's still stuff for figuring out. And you've identified something that took me a long time to realize, which is, it's so strange that all of us as search fund investors say the same thing, right? And we've seen it over and over again. It's all about talent. And yet, if it's all about talent, then how can you possibly figure out in a single meeting, have, and, and getting to see someone's resume, if they're actually the bee's knees, right? And so an explicit thing that I did with the FEDA fund and, and you know, part of the thing that my investors got really excited about was being clear, like, I want to meet people really early. You know, a big part of the reason I like, you know, I spent a lot of my time on business school trying to recruit folks uh, and, and figure out who I wanted back as a search fund investor is because I get 18 months to figure out if there's that good fit, if it's someone who I kind of get the chance to want to work with for a long time. It's why is it 18 months? It's because, you know, they, they come to school uh, and then September of their first year, they join the search fund club. And then they start talking to search fund investors. And then it gives me 18 months to get to know them and say, hey, like, is this someone who's always pushing the ball forward? They could be out partying because there's no grades in business school. But there's someone who you just can tell they've got this internal fire and they really want to do it. And then when they graduate 18 months later, they raise a search fund. Now I've got a really long time to figure out, hey, is this someone I want to work with? So I completely agree. It's basically a crapshoot if you're trying to figure out at the time of the deal whether or not someone's going to be great. And, and again, it's just easy for a lot of us at backgrounds, private equity investors. And in that world, it's all about the company, right? Mm -hmm. CEO, for whatever reason, the feeling in that industry is it's all about the company. There's even that famous Warren Buffett quote about bad companies beating great management teams. But it's different. The way you win and the way you succeed in our world is totally different. So I agree with you. I don't Good. know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the way you said that because I don't think, and this is just me, you know, it's also a risk for the searcher. You know, it's, I mean, you're basically marrying someone you really don't know. Now, I, yeah, I, I, I just see it be normalized in this world versus in the startup and venture capital world. The startup and venture capital world, I see much more formalities involved. And you just mentioned this industry has kind of you know, really tipped off in the past 15 years, been around for 40. So I'm wondering, is it because it's not as mature, but you still have all you guys that's from, you know, investment banking, M&A and all that. You've got, that's been around forever. So I don't, I really don't understand that mindset that's actually prevalent in this world. Absolutely. Um, I just think some of it's growing pains. You know, I've got stories from when I first started doing this back in 2016 and getting involved with searchers. That, you know, you say it today and people are like, how is it possible that you guys did silly stuff like that? But, you know, we're still learning and growing. And yeah, I know I think five, 10 years from now, what I do with the Fedathon is going to be pretty commonplace. People are going to realize that, hey, like we keep seeing over and over again, it's all about the person. Why are we trying to like flip a coin and, and hope that in a single 60 minute interview? Exactly. So. I think that's going to change just because it's just one of those funny examples of folks, uh, you know, we just haven't figured that out yet as a community. And, you know, honestly, that's part of what makes it exciting for me as a search fund investor. Just like searchers who pursue this path uh, have to learn and grow to be successful because you're doing something that's really hard, never done before. Uh, being a search fund investor is similarly dynamic. From year to year, things change so dramatically. And man, that's exciting for me. 
uh, you know, it makes this really, really fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're obviously a true entrepreneur yourself. This is search fund investors, just the way you're letting it play out, right? Versus being an operator of a small business or a startup founder. With that in mind, how do you, like you specifically, support entrepreneurs that you've decided to back? Yeah, it's funny, right? There's all of these wonderful things about working with searchers. And one of them is, you know, if you're going to do this thing and convince a bunch of investors to give you money and like convince sellers to small business owners to sell you their company, you kind of have to be an impressive person. Like folks who can't do that, can't pull that stuff off, don't tend to stay in the, don't tend to. The folks I meet who are, you know, having traction and are seriously thinking about this model are just impressive people because they're considering pursuing this, you know, wildly difficult thing. And it turns out when you get to work with impressive, smart people, if you ask them, hey, like, what are the hardest parts about this? They have smart answers and they'll tell you how they want to be worked with. It's great. Searchers are smart and they'll tell you what their pain points and frustrations are. And, you know, the thing I've heard a lot, and, and it's funny how I started hearing some of this stuff again in 2016, is just the search stage is really hard. You know, it turns out once somebody has invested $500,000, a million, $5 million in your company, it's a lot easier to get help, you know. But when you're out there looking for a business, there just aren't that many service providers out there who can help. And there aren't a lot of folks out there who specialize in helping in that part of the journey. But again, like that's where I hear the most frustration is it's once you find a company, you can kind of get the help and you can kind of figure it out. And if you're pursuing this path, it's because you want to be the CEO. So it's kind of a place naturally where you're more likely to succeed. But the search is harder. You know, it's lonely and there's less resources and less support and it feels more uncomfortable. And so that was another thing when we started the Fedafon, right? Part of the story was, hey, let's get to know folks really early because if it's all about talent, no substitute for spending hours and hours with someone over, you know, months and months. And then the second thing was, you know, searchers told me there's like 600 days, which is how long it takes on average for a searcher to find a company. The 600 days of search is the hardest and where they feel like they get the least support. And so that's where we spend basically all my time is helping the searchers I partner with during that 600 day period. And that's everything from fundraising, although usually these days that's not as so hard, but up through, you know, email outreach, you're going to be doing cold emails to small business owners for the first time in your career. Hundreds of searchers before you have done that. <laughs> They've learned some best practices the hard way. And if you can learn those best practices in a meeting or two, you save yourself three or six months of pain and suffering. So stuff like that, helping think through which types of deals are interesting and attractive. Because other searchers have looked in industries and if I can say, hey, like, this is a super neat industry, just know, you know, for ABC reasons, this is the risk. And, but, you know, XYZ reasons, that's really attractive. That can be helpful. I just had a conversation like that last week about the autism therapy industry which is a wonderful industry, but there's a couple of red flags that folks can run into if they're not careful and waste months and time and time and thousands of dollars. Would you mind sharing what they are before you go? Oh, of course. There's a very unusual thing about certain types of healthcare practices where, you know, it's two factors. First of all, the people who start these businesses tend to be providers. And so they're wonderful at serving patients, but they kind of get into this business role because you know, they're successful and they bring on staff and they suddenly look up one day and they've got 50 employees. And in autism therapy clinics in particular, even with just a couple million dollars, you can have dozens of employees and not, you know, well over a hundred. You know, that type of business, you know, the typical child that needs autism therapy needs to be seen about eight to 40 hours a week. 
and they can, you know, the the um, the revenue per child, kind of what these insurance companies pays, can be north of eighty thousand dollars. So you can kind of do the math if you want to start to see dozens of kids. You need a lot of staff because the therapy is very intensive. And so there's kind of two things. First of all, these are providers who kind of got promoted into a business role. And a lot of them kind of don't like that, but it's kind of part of what they have to do to serve as many patients and children as they want. And then on the opposite side, it turns out that when you, if you overbill revenue, even by a small amount, it drops straight to the bottom line, right? So if you ever increase prices by 10%, you know, all of that money goes straight to profitability, right? So the cost of service the same. So price increases are really valuable. And um, what you, what I've seen multiple times with some autism therapy clinics is a provider will accidentally be billing for time that they shouldn't be billing for. Sometimes it's something as simple as, hey, I didn't realize that when the therapist is in the room and playing with the child before the official autism therapy starts, we can't bill that time. Or it's, I didn't realize that for this care plan, it needs to be the more kind of like senior therapist that's harder to find who's billing it as opposed to doing it with the junior therapist. So you end up doing kind of like, even though really like there's not that much involved, it's just reviewing the plan with the patient. And so then you're able to bill that service a lot more time than you would if you did, if you were using the correct person on staff. So these little things like this, just practical realities of the business, uh, but then you end up overbilling. And again, dollar for dollar, if you're if you're billing, you know, twice what you should be billing for the service, all that drops to EBITDA and it makes the business look super profitable and super attractive. And so that's a tricky thing. You know, you're a searcher coming in and usually when you want to buy a company, you're doing it on a multiple of earnings. And so if there's a company that's coming in and they're overbilling, it's tricky because on the surface, that looks really attractive, right? They've got patients, they're billing a lot of revenue per patient, which looks good. Like they got really premium customer base and they've got really strong margins and generally businesses with strong margins are well run. And so there's all these tricky things where you might be like, wow, this is this diamond in the rough, amazing autism therapy clinic. They're doing everything right. And there's no reason this shouldn't be five or 10 times the size. It's a diamond in the rough. But actually those things that you were so excited about are actually you know, indicative of unintentional billing fraud. And it often takes tens of thousands of dollars and, you know, months before you realize it. And that's really expensive. So that's a little nuance, something that absolutely you can find out yourself. Uh, but, uh, you know, unless you know that about pediatric therapy clinics, usually you're going to learn the hard way. Um, How did you so find out? <laughs> How did you find out about that? Well, that's the thing, right? You know, I've had the privilege of working with over 50 searchers since 2016. And, you know, I've seen a couple searchers run into that. There's a searcher I worked really closely with, and he looked at two autism therapy businesses at the same time. And one of them was, you know, exactly example of this. It's incredible margins. And you're just like, wow, like the quality of patient base is so high. And he got, you know, 30 days in and we realized the billing fraud and he canceled on it. And then he ended up buying the other business, which ended up doing well. But, you know, wow. it's, it's uh, just learning those lessons from searchers who've learned it the hard way and trying to share that with the latest generation of searchers. You know, it's this is so hard and it's a lot easier if you're standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, yeah. Those searchers have come for you. Yeah. And also having a supportive investors like yourself, because some people are literally just the check. And you have industry knowledge and experience for 
helping so many, not just writing checks. So that's a huge advantage of the FEDA fund. You guys, I don't think that we keep saying FEDA fund, FEDA fund. What you guys don't realize is that's the name of his company. That's the name of his fund. So we will have the links to that in the show notes and you guys could get more information about it and reach out to him. I want to ask you, because you were talking about particular issues in that type of business with the Autism Center, for example. Now, what do you see as far as sectors that are most attractive now and and why? Yeah, Um, this is a really wonderful, uh, kind of a really interesting subject to discuss because for folks out there who've been searching for a small business to buy through the search fund model, the last six months have been terrible. There have been really few deals that have happened. And just the other day, I was having a conversation with someone I mean, he asked me the question, like, you know, is, is, uh, is this like no longer a thing? Like, does, is this broken? Like what's happened? Um, and, and there's a longer discussion about that, but uh, I think it's one of those things related to interest rates and it's created this like weird little hiccup. So. For folks that are worried um, about it, uh, we're already, those of us who do this a lot, we're already starting to see things pick up. So the first six months of 2023 were, were very difficult for people, but you know, as inflation comes down and as interest rates come down, we're seeing more stuff start to come out there. Searchers kind of having an easier time finding great businesses. But then in terms of those sectors, what's really popular right now is kind of healthcare and technology businesses. Um, for whatever reason, low growth businesses like landscaping services and HVAC plumbing businesses and, and companies like that, they're really wonderful companies with defensible companies with these moats. They're enduringly profitable. You know, they're non-deferrable, non-discretionary. If you have a, a plumbing issue in your home, you want to fix that ASAP. ASAP. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. On the technology front, though, you said technology yeah. business. Are we talking about software? Are we talking about hardware? Like, what are we, what type of technology businesses seem to be hot? Yeah. Only software. And the idea is most searchers, the number one thing they're looking for is high revenue quality businesses. So, what does that mean? I mean, a couple of things, but the, the peak best example is contractually recurring revenue. Um, yeah. And uh, when you see that, it says all these wonderful things. It means it's, it's um, revenue retention is going to look good because it's hard for customers to leave. It means mm-hmm. customers care about the service enough that they're willing to sign up for a year-long or multi-year long uh, contract. It means you must be providing a good service for customers to want to sign up for stuff like that. There's all these positive signals that high revenue quality tells us. And so yeah. it turns out in the software business, you sometimes run into that, right? Software businesses where they're selling multi-year contracts. Often customers are prepaying before they use the service. And so those are really attractive businesses. But, you know, that's kind of the big thing. We're looking for revenue quality. And you're seeing that in some technology businesses and certain types of healthcare businesses. You know, there will come a time again when you start to see more HVAC and plumbing businesses, kind of low growth businesses like that start to be sold again. But I think for the first six to eight months of the year, just given the interest rate and inflation environment, it's been, been challenging for companies like that to be bought and sold. On that front, so just to elaborate on that point a little bit, the interest rates, um, especially for folks that are listening, a lot of people who buy these small businesses, part of the way they structure their deal is by getting SBA debt. And so those interest rates fluctuate depending on what's happening in the economy. So with, with the inflation, 
um, those interest rates are super high right now. What is it um, right now? Is it 11 percent? Yeah. So Wall Street Journal Prime is eight and a half percent, which is so large that, you know, a couple of years ago, if you told people it's going to be eight and a half percent, they would have laughed you out of the room. Mm-hmm. And those small business loans, um, they add a couple of percentage points on top of that. So it's yeah. kind of around 11, just like you said. Around um, 11. Mm-hmm. So with the interest rates being high, the searcher or the acquirer themselves, they would end up with basically a higher loan payment. So how does that affect the quality of the businesses that's available to them? Yeah. And and this is, uh, I am surprised there's not more discussion about this. Um, and here's how I, I would tee it up. If you're going to borrow money at 12% and you're going to buy a business that generates annual returns of 10%, you'll never make money, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's, right. It, that's not winning, right? Mm-hmm. And so the really tricky thing is, what makes these HVAC plumbing businesses and landscaping companies and other kind of low growth services businesses really appealing? Is they're not going anywhere, right? They're, they're, gonna, they're there for the long run. But they also kind of one of the downsides of those businesses is they don't really grow very much. It's hard to grow them um, unless you start doing acquisitions and other sorts of crazy stuff. Just owning that company, it's really hard to grow it from year to year. And so there are all of these great businesses out there that you know, owners looking to sell, but no one can buy them. It's the borrowing 12% for a business that generates five to 10% a year in terms of kind of cash flow and value. So all those businesses are waiting. <laughs> They're just waiting for interest rates to come down because interest rates come down exactly a year ago. Wall Street Journal Prime was about five and a half percent. You find a business that generates 10% a year and you can borrow eight, eight and a half percent, still a little tight. At least it's positive, you know, since, you know, borrow yeah. eight and a half. I think a 10% return, that's, that actually is making money. So there's all those businesses waiting on the sideline. And so then the question, well, why is healthcare and, and technology, why are those businesses allowed? And it's because they're kind of gen- generally able to grow or actually growing faster. And so that's why a lot of the, the deal volume has been there. You can borrow money at 11, 12%, and generate a 15% return. You know, math still pencils out there. You're still making money. So Good point. So, you know, risk management, that's a crucial part of any investment. Tell me a little bit about any type of strategies that you employ to help mitigate the risks and uncertainties in this environment that we're in, especially during the search and acquisition phase itself. Yeah, I'm sure it's almost a meme at this point, uh, just because I I write about it so often on Twitter. But the number one thing I encourage folks to do as soon as you have an exclusivity offer to buy someone's business is run a background check. I mean, you would be surprised how many folks I run into who figured out everything else. They got a beautiful financial model and they talked to customers and they met the seller and gotten coffee and dinner together and uh, they never run the background check. And in some cases, I know folks who ran a background check 30 days, a couple of weeks before they bought the company and found out it was a big problem, right? Um, Wait, do you need the, the owner's social security number to run that background check? And do they hand it over? Yeah. So you actually don't to run the types of background checks that um, we're looking for, which is okay. looking for criminal activity and you know civil lawsuits. I think it's generally good hygiene to like tell folks before you run a background check. Uh, it's just kind of impolite. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things about buying a small business is that 
it's not really like the day you purchase the business, the owner just disappears and, and they don't matter anymore. Why? Because the 25 com person company, every single person of that company was hired by the owner. Every single customer that was won, won by that owner, right? If there's a product that was built, it was built by that owner. So it you know, takes a while uh, for that owner's influence to lessen. And so, um, you know, most people, if they find out you ran a background check on them and didn't tell them, it's just, you know, doesn't make anyone feel good. So yeah, encourage, tell your seller. Yeah, please do that. And if you can get their social security number, you can also get their kind of credit record and stuff, which is, which is nice. But if they don't want to provide it, you know, it's not yeah. the end of the world. We're just trying to find out about the lawsuits and, and you know, criminal activity and stuff like that. So, And I know in your Twitter um, account, some of your posts, you've mentioned the company that you've used before or that you prefer to use. Maybe that's something we could put in the show notes if you... Sure. You're open to it's, it. uh, it's search or run. They're a little expensive, but generally in this world, I'm very happy to pay more money if I know I have a service provider that works 100% of the time. That 99%, 100% of the time. And, you know, the fact that it was acquired and run by a searcher, I mean, you know, love to support the community. even if So smart. So smart. So smart. Um, yeah, that's that's a really smart, smart business because they understand what's needed. They've been there, done that. Yeah. Wow. We could really go into lots of details and stuff about how searching is done and criteria, like search criteria and things of that nature. But I want you all to know that I've had Sonil do a webinar, be a part of a webinar series that I did several months ago. And a lot of the insights that he provided and resources that he mentioned have all been put into a PDF document that you can have and download and open for free with no email address required. And so you'll be able to get SoMil's resource list, as well as his email address and all of that is in that document, which will also be in the show notes as a PDF. So SoMil, I don't want to keep you all day, even though I'd love to sit here and talk to you about some more search fund stuff. Quick question though, before we, we wrap up here, what's your average check size? Yeah. So for folks that are meeting just at the deal stage, it's kind of $200,000 to $500,000. Mm -hmm. Again, unfortunately, there are a lot of people I meet and I say, hey, like, you know, your company looks really interesting and you seem like a great person, but I'm honestly meeting you too late to be able to participate. It's all about the person for me. So even if I'm meeting you at the deal stage, just be aware. It's big for me to spend a lot of time with, with you. And honestly, most searchers find that helpful because it's like where I where I add a lot of value, where, where I try to be really helpful at the deal stage. So it kind of works out nicely. We get the chance to spend a lot of time together. And then that means I can be more valuable and helpful to them. But so for those folks I'm meeting at the search stage, it's a smaller check, $200,000 to $500,000. And again, like spending a lot of time with you is important. But then for folks I get to know for a long time, you know, 24, 36 months before they acquire a company, ideally folks I'm meeting, again, you know, business school is an easy way to get to know folks for that long. It's a $500,000 to $1.5 million check. And, and one thing I'll share for those who are kind of further along and learning about search funds is I invest across both the traditional search fund model and the self-funded model. So if that's a kind of open question, I just wanted to answer that. But thank you for adding that. I think you're the only one I've met who have said that. Some yeah. folks are strictly traditional and other folks are like self-funded only, you know? So you support across the spectrum. Yeah. And then also the accelerator model, which is a kind of another thing. Okay. Um, I mean, again, it, it's just part of that 
theory of the world is all about talent. It turns out really talented people pursue different types of search fund models, right? So if you believe it's all about talent, then then the model shouldn't matter as much. You are a valuable resource on Twitter and just in real life. So if anyone's even interested in pursuing this path, so Mill is a great person to know, and I will have all of his information in the show notes. But so Mill, right now, just tell them the best way to get in touch with you. Yeah, um, you know, I find it to be a personal calling to help folks out there that are thinking about doing this kind of wild, crazy and challenging thing. And so I love kind of sharing what I've learned on social media. So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Fetafund. Uh, and also on LinkedIn, kind of started uh, sharing some content over there. And I love it. I really love it when searchers reach out to me. Monique will share my email and the show notes. So you know, please reach out. And if I can be helpful to you, I'd, I'd love to be. And I'm just thrilled. Every year, there's more and more people who are, who are doing this thing. And it's inspiring. Well, you know what? A lot of people are becoming successful in it because of your help. So you have to give yourself some kudos for that. Oh, so That's nice to say. Yep. Thanks so much for joining us today. And I hope to have you back on again in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun and I'd be thrilled to be back. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com.